Benjamin Franklin is famous for saying, in this world, nothing is certain but death and taxes. And not much has changed in a couple hundred years. And uh, the one that is probably more certain than the other, although it might be a toss-up sometimes, is certainly death. Death is the unbeatable foe. It's that shadow that always hangs over us. That all people throughout all histories have tried to defeat by eating better, by exercising, by doing all of these regiments, you know, paying for, for procedures, trying to avoid death. But as we know, it is inevitable. So much of our time, our money, and our effort, whether we realize it or not, is spent toward trying to prolong our lives. And why? Why is there this preoccupation with trying to avoid death? death is the unbeatable enemy and it's coming for all of us but death is especially scary if you have no hope after life and many of us who are trying so desperately to hold on to our our moments here on earth may not realize our fear of leaving what we know what we can see and what we can touch and so we're going to address that this morning how much of our lives is driven by fear How much of our lives are driven by fear of what people may do to us, driven by fear of sickness, driven by fear of hurt and pain, driven by fear of death. I love this quote from William Gurnall, uh, who's a, a Puritan. He said, why should you be afraid to die who hope to live by dying? Why should you be afraid to die who hope to live by dying? That is the very nature of what it means to be a Christian. Christ died, so we die. Christ lives, so we live. Yet why is there still this preoccupation with death? The Apostle Paul addresses that from a very different perspective. So before we get into our text this morning, I want you to turn to the book of Philippians. So a few books to the right in your Bible in the middle of um, Paul's letters. Philippians chapter 1, a lot of you know this, but I want you to bring this home, and I want to set the scenes while you're getting there. So, Philippians is one of the prison epistles. It's also known as the epistle of joy. Those things wouldn't go together. Paul is in prison, in the worst prison system the world has ever seen, probably, where it's dirty and it's smelly and it's rats, and uh, for his charges, he could be facing death. And yet this is a letter which has a theme of joy throughout it. So in chapter 1, he says this beginning in verse 21. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. For me to live is Christ and to die is gain. If you're not a Christian, that sounds crazy. If I am to live in the flesh, I'm in verse 22, chapter 1. That means fruitful labor for me. So my life is labor unto the Lord. Yet which I shall choose, I cannot tell. What 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 are his choices here? I am hard pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ. For that is far better. Do we feel like that? Or are we scared to leave? Maybe. Maybe. My desire is to be with Christ, for that is far better. 
but to remain in the flesh is more necessary for your account. This is someone who knows that it will be better in the presence of his Savior, yet it is necessary for the sake of other believers. How does the church view death? It is better to be with Christ, but it is necessary for the sake of the believers that we are here. He goes on, convinced of this, I know that I will remain and continue with you all for your progress and joy in the faith. He knows that the Lord has him here for the growth of his brothers and sisters in Christ. That is why we are still here to see his kingdom come and his will be done in the lives of one another. So that in me, you may have ample cause to glory in Christ Jesus because of my coming to you again. The purpose here is glory. What is marvelous, what is wonderful, what is honorable, what is praiseworthy. The glory in Christ Jesus that Paul should come to them again. It'd be easier, it'd be better for him to just die and be with Christ and accept whatever Rome will put on him. But for their sake, for their rejoicing, God will bring him to them again to uplift the church. I love what Charles Spurgeon says about death. Because Christians have a very unique view of death. No one talks about it's a good thing to die and leave this world because most people are so firmly planted in this world, that's all that they can comprehend. Charles Spurgeon says this, We see his smile of love even when others see nothing but the black hand of death smiting our beloved. So when when people die... The rest of the world sees this black hand of death, but we see a smile of love. This is a real question for believers. Can we see the love of God in death? Hopefully we will this morning. So if you would open your Bibles. John chapter 11, starting in verse 1, I'm going to read through verse 16. Now a certain man was ill, Lazarus of Bethany the village of Mary and her sister Martha. It was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. So the sisters sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. But when Jesus heard it, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It is for the glory of God, so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Now Jesus loved Martha and her sister and Lazarus. So when they heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. Then after this, he said to his disciples, let us go again to Judea. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you and you want to go there again? Jesus answered, are there not 12 hours in the day? If anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. The disciples said to him, Lord, if he has fallen asleep, he will recover. Now Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest and sleep. Then Jesus told them plainly, Lazarus has died. 
And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there so that you may believe. But let us go to him. So Thomas, called the twin, said to his fellow disciples, let us also go that we may die with him. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, your glory is beyond comprehension. Like Jonathan said a moment ago, it should make us speechless to think about how awesome you are. Your glory cannot be described in human words, and you had it before all time. The glory the Son shares with you, and the Spirit shares with you. And that glory you sent to earth to be glorified in our midst. So that like Lazarus, this illness of sin that plagues every fiber of our body would not lead to death. That we would see in Christ there is life and life everlasting. There is no sting in death. There is no pain in sickness. There is no fear in this life if we are yours. And I pray that you would challenge us, convict us, that your spirit would lead us. And that like Thomas the Apostle, we would say, let us go and die with Christ. Amen. Starting in verse 1. Now a certain man was ill. This word ill is literally one without strength. This is not the common cold. This is not some hopeful sickness. This is someone who is on their deathbed. They literally have no strength of their own. They have no power within themselves. And he's Lazarus of Bethany. Now this is important to distinguish here because there's another Lazarus in Luke 16 in a parable, not the same Lazarus. There's also another distinction here, the village of Mary and her sister Martha. Not to be confused with Mary Magdalene. Uh, We're going to spend more time on Mary and Martha in a couple chapters, but it's important to know that this this family here, um, these these faithful believers we're going to see are near and dear to Christ. Um, Also, we're going to see, we've got to know what's going on here geographically. So we just saw in the end of chapter 10, verse 40, it says that he went away again, Jesus went away again, across the Jordan to where John was baptizing before. Now, if you're paying attention in John, in chapter 1, verse 28, it says that John was baptizing in Bethany. Now, it's important that John, the writer of the gospel, makes the distinction here. Because there's two Bethanies, common name. Um... And essentially, there's one Bethany that is east of the Jordan, kind of where Jesus went to get away at the edge of the wilderness where John was baptizing. There's another Bethany that we'll see next week that is two miles outside of Jerusalem. There's a several day journey between the two of them. So Jesus is in one Bethany. uh, Mary and Martha are in another one. And then this is going to unfold. And then you'll see why the geographics are important in just a moment. Verse 2, so it was Mary who anointed the Lord with ointment and wiped his feet with her hair, whose brother Lazarus was ill. Now, we're going to spend more time on this in a couple weeks because John actually gives us this narrative in chapter 12. But he's, he's telling us this is the Mary I'm talking about. Not a different Mary is a common name in those days. 
And the, the Mary who um, wipes the Savior's feet with her hair. This is a great picture of service and humility that we'll see in a few weeks. And this is kind of a parenthetical. John's just telling you, here's the city, here's who Lazarus is, here's who Mary is, just so you know the players in this, this situation. And now he's going to describe Jesus' relationship to them. Verse 3. So the sisters sent to him, saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. The sisters sent to him. So they sent a messenger with several days journey to find Jesus, which is exactly what they should do, right? Their brother's sick. What do you do? You go to Jesus himself. Probably shouldn't have to spell that out for you. There's a good parallel in that for us. When someone we love is sick, when there's something that is, that is breaking our hearts, we go to the Lord first, as they did. And they use an interesting phrase here. So sister sent to him saying, Lord, he whom you love is ill. No name, no other important details, no other description, but he whom you love. Shows you what type of relationship that Jesus had with Lazarus. He whom you love. That's all that needed to be said. This word in the Greek, philos, there's several different words for love in the Greek. This is the kind of um, brotherly love. This is the love of, of brothers to one another, this, this, this um, deep friendship. It's where the Philadelphia gets its name. Philos Adelphos, city of brotherly love. Now you can't really tell from their sports fans, but it's, that's their name. Um, and it's interesting that this town of Bethany was not very far from its historical namesake. So Philadelphia was not far outside of where this Bethany was. I don't know if that has anything to do with here, but that's just your random fact for the day. But this brotherly love, this mutual respect and admiration is a consistent biblical quality. Over and over again, we see this in the letters, but Paul speaking about his love for the saints. And at the end of his letters, he talks about the saints' love for one another and expresses them, expresses that by name. And as I was thinking about that this week, it's one of the things I'm very proud of this congregation for. That our guys can, can still be manly and express our love for one another. Say, I, I love you, man. I appreciate you. You are my brother in Christ. I care for you. That is a good thing. That is a godly thing. That is something that the world may look down on. But we as brothers in Christ can say, I love you. Because Christ died for you. He died for me. And in him, we are united to him and united to one another. And Jesus' love for Lazarus is a picture of beautiful brotherly love. So it goes on. But when Jesus heard this, he said, this illness does not lead to death. It doesn't lead to death. But if you know the story, Lazarus died. So what, is, what does this mean? What is Jesus saying here? We're going to unpack this as we go. But essentially, death does not have its final say with Christ. Whether physical or spiritual. And Jesus knows that this particular death... This particular illness does not lead to ultimate death. And we're going to see why in just a second. And this sets us up really well 
for verse 25. This is a preview of what we're going to get next year. Verse 25 of chapter 11. Jesus says, I am the resurrection and the life. Whoever believes in me, though he die, yet shall he live. In Christ, death is not death. Death is not final. And this particular death, he says, it is for the glory of God. I mentioned God's glory a little bit earlier. But God's glory is all that makes him who he is. His marvelous, awesome nature. He's worthy of all praise and worship to magnify who he is. It is the purpose of all that he does. To bring glory to his name. It is for God's glory. And it should just amaze us that this insignificant family, this man in a small town 2,000 years ago, is part of God's plan to bring glory to his name. That even the insignificant, the people that the world would walk by every day and think nothing of, God is using for his glory. And nothing has changed. God is still doing the same thing. This is for his glory. And I also want to point out, this also speaks against all these false teachers who proclaim a health and wealth gospel. Who tell you that you're you're sick because you don't have enough faith. Or this is happening because God is angry with you particularly. God brings glory out of every circumstance. And even in sickness, he will be exalted. What is the purpose of this? God gets glory. Okay. Is that the end of it? No. It is for God. It is for the glory of God so that what particular aspect of God's glory? So that the son may be glorified. The son of God may be glorified through it. Got to connect these two. There's a noun first. The glory of God. It is something that God possesses within himself. It is God's glory. It has always been his. Jesus tells us in John 17 that my glory I have had with you, the father, before the world began. I have glorified you in all that I do. Glory. It is possessed by God. But at the same time, the verb glorified is being worked out right in front of them. The glory of God is being manifested right in front of them. It is the act of Christ's innate glory, that is, which he possesses in himself already, being shown before all of them. The glory I possess before the Father, you're going to see a little bit of it through this. The Son is being glorified, the glory that is attributed to him and should be. This is a major theme that we're going to see throughout the rest of the book of John. Jesus is going to talk, talk more and more about his own glory. Because along the way, he's been saying, my time has not yet come. Well, now we are a couple months from the Feast of Dedication, a couple months from Passover, his last Passover. So his time is coming. And this is for his glory. And so this sickness, this particular sickness is for the glory of God. And so that the Son of God may be glorified through it. Another further connection where the glory of the Father and the glory of the Son are in unison. And, and they are the basis of everything they do and the goal of everything that our God does in our midst. God's glory. Have to understand that going forward, even if this doesn't make sense right away. 
The other thing I want you to see here is Lazarus' death parallels Christ's death. Because Christ's death on the cross did not lead to ultimate death. This particular death does not lead to death as in the way we would think of it. Because the world around us will tell us that death is the end of all things. Well, that's it. You die and then you're done. Well, not this death. Because when Christ died on the cross, he was resurrected so that God may be glorified. And the Son may be glorified through it. And just like the death of Christ on the cross. And his resurrection to life. And him raising Lazarus to new life. So it is with those who are in Christ. Death is not the final say. God gets glory. The Son is glorified through it. Because when we tell our testimonies, when we tell what God has done in our lives, it's not what I've done. Jesus saved me. I was lost and I was found. I was dead and now I'm alive. Thank you to my Lord Jesus Christ. And then when we proclaim what Jesus has done in our lives, he is glorified. But if it's about how smart we are, how good we are, how well we can package ourselves on the outside, we get the glory. And we're going to see in this situation with Lazarus, Jesus does this so perfectly and so that only he can get the glory for what is done. Let's move on. Now, verse 5, Jesus loved Martha and her sister, and Lazarus. Uh, one of the things people ask me all the time is, why is it necessary, why do you need to take the Greek language? And for most of you, you will never read a, a word of Greek, and you don't have to. Uh, but for me to help you and to be able to teach this, there's so much in the Greek that you can't get in the English. Like here, this is a different Greek word for love. Earlier, it was philos, this brotherly love. This one is agapao. It's a deeper love. It is this um, ongoing high regard, this loving someone dearly and deeply. It's not, ro- not romantic, but um, in a way that you deeply are concerned for a person. And you, they're, they're both translated love in the English because it would take too much explanation to differentiate between the two words. But so now this is escalating because the the sisters say that Lazarus that you love like a brother, he's dying. But John knows that Jesus loves him deeply. He loves the sisters deeply. And this verb tense here, it means that it was something that was true in the past and it is unbroken and continually true. This is a love that is rooted in the Savior. And this is the same love that he has for us. Those who are in Christ, he has loved you. He does love you and he always will love you. And you see his concern for them. And it's a beautiful picture of how he loves those who are his. He loves those who are hurting. And so when you love someone who's hurting and something's going on, you want to jump to the rescue right away, right? So when he heard that Lazarus was ill, he stayed two days longer in the place where he was. What? You, you just, John just said how much you loved him. 
And you're going to hang out for two more days. Except we, we expect to read, Jesus heard that he was sick. He loves Lazarus. So he dropped everything and ran to his rescue. But Jesus is not driven by the circumstances. That's stuff we do. Okay, something happens. Now we got to scatter and figure something out. Jesus is unaffected by it. Your friend is dying. You love him. Do something. I am. I'm going to wait. Then, two days later, after this, he said to the disciples, let us go to Judea again. If you don't know your uh, ancient Near Eastern geography or present day geography, Judea is where Jerusalem is. Anybody remember what happened last time he was in Jerusalem? Just a few verses ago, they wanted to stone him. It's not like what they do in Colorado these days. It's like they, they wanted to kill him. Some of you will get that later. And they wanted wanted him to die by stones. And he said, let's go back there. And I love the response of the disciples. Because many times we can read this stuff with a straight face. But listen to the emphasis here. The disciples said to him, Rabbi, the Jews were just now seeking to stone you. Like this happened five minutes ago. Like we were just there. It's not like they forgot. This just happened. And you want to go back there again? Of course the disciples have concern for their master, for their their teacher. But they're scared. They fear man. They love their savior. They love their master. But it seems like they fear people more than they they trust him. (laughs) They fear man and they fear death because they know If Jesus is going, they're going to stone him. And there's probably a a realization that if they're nearby, they're going to get stoned as well. And I don't blame them, because if I knew someone in Orlando was trying to kill me, or the mob of Orlando was trying to kill me, I would probably avoid Orlando. But that's not Jesus. I'm going to go back there because one of my sheep is there. And people are mourning and people are hurting. I'm going to be with the ones I love. And I love how Jesus, as always, does not give them the obvious answer, doesn't even speak to what they're they're saying, but he addresses their fears with spiritual truths. He goes on to say, are there not 12 hours in a day? Again, what? What does this have to do with Lazarus dying and them trying to kill you in Jerusalem? But again, the brilliance of Jesus' teaching. Let me, let me just kind of break this down a little bit and tell you what um, he's teaching them. Are there not 12 hours in a day? So essentially Jesus is saying here that there is a fixed amount of time in which you can operate. Just like the hours in the day will not change, the Father's plan for me will not change. I operate in the daylight. I operate in the Father's timing. And nothing's going to change that. The daylight hours of my ministry are fixed. I walk according to the hours set by the Father, just like the daylight. As sure as the sun rises and the sun sets and God keeps the world spinning, so is my ministry and so is my time here on earth. Such a profound truth to a simple fear. And he goes on to say, if anyone walks in the day, he shall not stumble. Because he sees the light of the world. 
So Jesus knows the Father won't let me stumble because I walk in the daylight. I am the daylight. I am the light of the world. That's why this theme keeps coming up in John. Because the light has so many parallels to what's going on here spiritually. It is the light of men that, that brings them into salvation, chapter 1. It is the light of the world that will shine onto all the nations in chapter 8. And a little preview of chapter 12, he says this in verse 35 of chapter 12. The light is among you for a little while longer. Walk while you have the light, lest darkness overtake you. The one who walks in the darkness does not know where he is going. While you have the light, believe in the light that you may become sons of light. This is an encouragement to us. Jesus says, if anyone walks in the day, he does not stumble because he sees the light of the world. A son of light. This is encouragement to the believer. If we are his, we walk in the light. And nothing that the world can do is going to change what the Father has already fixed. We read in our prayer this morning, Psalm 139. This great encouragement to many believers where David says that my days were written in your book, all of them, before one of them even happened. This is exactly what Jesus is saying here. The days are fixed. Walk in me and you will always walk in daylight. And if you walk in him, there is nothing that the world can do to stop you. So he doesn't fear them in Jerusalem. One of my favorite quotes I'll use this often. Uh, George Whitfield says, I am invincible until God is finished with me. The great evangelist who took rotten fruit and glass bottles to the face and faced many death threats many times for, for preaching the gospel. They hated him and tried to kill him. He said, I am invincible until God is finished with me. You've got one of those little Mario stars where nothing can touch you until God is finished with you. It, do, do you ever think about that? That God has determined every one of your days before one of them has even happened. And you are invincible. Nothing can stop or thwart the hand of God. Jesus knows that. And he's trying to encourage the disciples with that. Our days are fixed by the Father. But so often we're so preoccupied with our circumstances that all we can think about is what's right in front of us. We forget who's on the throne. We forget who knew every one of our days and every one of our breaths. David also says that you know every word before I even utter it. But yet we fear what's going on around us. Jesus is so unaffected by what worries everyone else because he is the light. So if we are in Christ and he calls us the light of the world because he's in us, what does that mean for us? How should we view the world around us? We should see the entire world in the light of the light. In light of the light that we are his and if we walk in the daytime, we will not stumble. But for those who don't have the light, they will stumble. If you walk in darkness, you are not going to have sure footing. And this is exactly what Jesus says here. There's always the, the contrast. Verse 10. But if anyone walks in the night, he stumbles because the light is not in him. I love the beauty of Jesus' teaching. He takes these deep spiritual truth, these profound things that philosophers have wrestled with for ages and puts them into simple terms. He talks about the simplest everyday things and gives them theological significance. So if you walk in the darkness, you'll stumble. 
this is, this is true. If you walk in the darkness, you'll stumble. But there's also that deeper spiritual parallel. Likewise, if you walk apart from the determined will of the Father, you will stumble. Even though you're walking in daytime, you are walking in darkness. If you walk apart from the will of the Father, if you are walking apart from the light of the sun, you are walking in darkness and you will stumble. That is why we use the terminology, the New Testament used the terminology, the Christian walk. Because it's applicable. As we go, as we walk, we are to walk in the light of Christ. This is why we remind each other of the gospel. This is why we stir one another on to good works so that we continue to walk in the light of Christ. The Christian walk is so important. And if we walk contrary to that light, we will stumble. The person who has no light is in perpetual darkness and they will always stumble. But many of you and all of us have moments in our lives when we know we have the light, yet we choose to walk in darkness and then wonder why we stumble. Sound familiar? Am I the only one who's been there? No. <laughs> Thank you. <laughs> Thanks for bailing me out. And, but I want you to consider that. As you go throughout your, your, your days, do you believe what God has told you in the light? Or do you listen to what your flesh whispers in the darkness? Do you believe lies that only lead to you stumbling and you continue to stumble living according to lies? Or do you walk in the light where God's word directs your path and shines brightly so you do not stumble? After saying these things, he said to them, Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. Death for believers is spoken often as sleep. Why? Because it's not the end. Again, death is not the same for believers as it is for everyone else. There is an awakening. Sleep is only temporary. When you sleep, there's always an understanding that you're going to wake up again. It is the same for believers. And for Jesus, for Jesus, it is as simple as flipping a switch. I'm going to go wake him up. He's just sleeping. This is also a great uh, spiritual parallel too. That death is not final in Christ. Those who are dead spiritually must be woken up by Christ. They cannot wake themselves up. They're dead. Jesus has to wake them up. And also, those who die in him physically, he will wake them up spiritually. So both our spiritual life, our regeneration to be born again, Jesus wakes us up. And our physical death, as we, when we die and go into the grave, he will wake us up to be with him. Both spiritually and physically, Christ will wake us up to be with him. And we see that in Lazarus here. And then one more thing. Our friend Lazarus has fallen asleep, but I go to awaken him. It is Jesus taking the initiative. It is Jesus going after Lazarus. And I love the parallel here. I go to wake him up. It's the same reason he came. He came to earth to wake up his who are dead in their sin. Just like he came for us to wake us up from our deadness. He's going to go and wake 
Lazarus up from his deadness. But of course, the disciples missed the point. As so often they do, and so often we do, they lack spiritual discernments. They don't see what Jesus is really talking about here. And they, the disciples said to him, Lord, if he's fallen asleep, he'll recover. Oh, these naive disciples. Oh, if he's just fallen asleep. They, they, they take everything literally and at face value. And so many people miss the spiritual truths of the, the Bible. They, they miss the gospel because there's no spiritual discernment to see beyond that. But thankfully, John is here to help us, and he explains to us what's going on with the disciples. Now, Jesus had spoken of his death, but they thought he meant taking rest in sleep. Think about this for a moment. If Jesus speaks about death, as in, as it's sleep, should we be afraid of anything? If death is the one thing that none of us can do anything about, that we know it's coming to all of us, and Jesus speaks about it like he's just sleeping. He's taking a nap. Should we fear anything? How often do we forget about this? We're afraid about, we're afraid of death. We're afraid of disease or sickness or natural disasters or whatever they're worried about on the internet or whatever they're worried about on the news, the next conspiracy theory. Jesus wakes up the dead. So why do we fear lesser things? How often do we think about that? The things that we fear. The things that consume us. His light is in us. How often do we choose to walk in fear? As if we're surrounded by night. When the light of the world is in us. And what does that say about how we view Christ? If our fears are shouting in our minds, in our hearts, yet we don't listen to the truth of the gospel, that if you are mine, you are sons of light. I am in you. You will be one with me like I am one with the Father, and no one will ever snatch you out of my hand. These things are encouragement after encouragement to the believer. But so often do we look at things on the surface, look at our surroundings, and we miss, miss the deeper spiritual things like the disciples do. Then Jesus told them plainly, verse 14. Up until this point, he was speaking in, in metaphors, the, the light and the darkness, the sleep and the death. Now he's just he's laying it out there. All right, you guys still don't get it? You knuckleheads, you're still not listening? Lazarus is dead. Lazarus died. Do you get it now? And he says something remarkable right after this. Lazarus has died, and for your sake I am glad. Well, wait a second. Jesus loves him. You're glad? Take his, take his words in full context here. And for your sake, I am glad that I was not there, so that you may believe. Why did Jesus delay earlier? It seems as if he didn't care. Lazarus is dying, right? He delayed for their sake, so that they would believe. Why does Jesus delay sometimes when we think he should act right away? For our sake, so that we might believe. Because what's the greater miracle? To hurry up and heal a sick man 
or to raise a dead man. So often, we don't get what we want when we want it, and we think God forgot about us. But he is always doing something greater. (laughs) What is the greater miracle? Giving you what you want when you want it. Or giving you exactly what you need at the last possible moment when all other efforts have been exhausted and only God can get the glory for what he has done. I am glad for your sake that I wasn't there. Because now there is no doubt. He waited two days and it's probably another two days journey to get there. Four days. You think he's dead enough? So that you may believe. If God always acted right away, we'd have no reason to trust him. There'd be no reason for faith. Four days he's dead. Now let's go to him. Verse 16. So Thomas called the twin, said to the fellow disciples, we'll get a lot from from Thomas. Typically he's, he's, he's doubting Thomas. Um, this word is the Aramaic for, for twin. Um, nothing interesting there, so we're going to leave that there. Um, let us go that we may die with him. I love this. Because Thomas is still thinking that if we go to Judea, they're going to stone Jesus. And if they're going to kill Jesus, let them kill me too. I'm so proud of Thomas right here. There is no fear of death when you are in Christ. If they're going to kill my Savior, I'm going down with him. Hmm. This is precisely how we should act. And this is precisely what we are called to do. We are called to die to ourselves and take up our cross and follow him. They hated Christ, let them hate us. They ridiculed Christ, let them ridicule us. They killed Christ, let them kill us. Better be away from this body and present with the Lord. Let us stand with Thomas and say, if they're going to kill him, let them treat me like they treated Jesus. Better to be in my father's table in heaven than to be praised by man here on earth and be separated from him in hell forever. I want to close with a quote from one of my favorite Puritans. It shouldn't surprise you that some of my favorite reads are those who wrote about 400 years ago, um, and really got to the depth of the Christian life. Thomas Watson, uh, in his Body of Divinity, writes this. We should be content to live, but willing to die. Just stop there. We should be content to live, but willing to die. Is it not a blessed thing to be freed from sin and to lie forever in the bosom of divine love? Is it not a blessed thing to meet our godly relations in heaven and to be singing divine anthems of praise among the angels? Does not the bride desire the marriage day, especially if she has the prospect of a crown? What is the place we now live in but a place of banishment from God? We are in a wilderness while angels live at court. Here we are combating with Satan. And should we not desire to be out of this bloody field where the bullets of temptation fly fast and receive our victorious crown? Think what it will will be 
to have always a smiling look from Christ's face. To be brought into the banquet house and to have the banner of his love displayed over us. O ye saints, desire death. It is your ascension day to heaven. It's good stuff. So just want to close with a few questions. Do you fear death? Do you fear sickness? Do you fear what man can throw at you? Where is your hope? Where is your security? Do you remember that Jesus raises people from the dead? Do you believe that? Has he done that for you? Do you know that everything in your life, whether you understand it or not, he is doing it for his glory so that you will believe in him? And it is his love that sent his son to earth that he might die the death we deserve. That he might be raised to new life, to be glorified, that we might be raised to new life in him. That is the love of God. That is glory in death. And that is a hope that the world cannot take away from you. So we are children of light walking in light. Let's pray. Lord, thank you. Thank you for revealing yourself to us. Thank you that your glory means our redemption. Thank you that your humility means our exaltation. That your death meant our life, means our life. Lord, forgive us when we forget what you've done for us. Forgive us when we fear man, when we fear death, when we fear sickness, when we fear things that are not of you. Forgive us when we choose darkness over light. Forgive us when we listen to lies instead of living in the truth. Lord, convict our hearts. Lord, reveal us where it weighs where we are not trusting you. Lord, remind us of your love for us that is unchanging. Even beyond the grave, you are good and you are gracious. We are your children. If we indeed put our faith and trust in you, and I just encourage everyone here to put their trust in you, to believe and to recognize that everything you do, you do it for your glory and for our sake. In Jesus' name we pray.